0: Towering over the tangle of medieval city streets at the center of the First District, you'll find Vienna's most recognizable central landmark, the magnificent and imposing Cathedral of St. Stephen. A directional basilica, it consists of a long main central aisle with two smaller side aisles, bisected by a transept to form the shape of a cross. And like other directional churches, St. Stephen's is aligned with the compass. Its entryway facing west, and the sanctuary, the end housing the altar, facing east. In fact, the cathedral is so situated that on the Feast of St. Stephen, the 26th of December, the sun rises directly through the original stained glass windows behind the altar, bathing the interior in light. I have another episode dedicated to the inside of the church. For now, there's plenty to discuss from outside, and we'll start with the massive entrance at its west end, nearest the Ubon station. This imposing main portal is called the Riesentor, or Giant's Gate, a name that actually comes not from its size, but from the discovery of three large bones that were found during excavations to lay the foundations for the cathedral's north tower in 1443. The largest of these bones was 86 centimeters, that's nearly a yard long, too large to have come from either human or livestock, which led to speculation that the bones may have belonged to Nephilim, giants described in the early books of the Old Testament. A story developed about these giants helping to build the church, then choosing to be baptized on this site, and the bones were put on display here at the cathedral's entrance as holy relics for quite some time, until science revealed them to be the remains of a mastodon from the late Pleistocene period. Ultimately, the bones were taken down and put into the university archive, but the name has stuck. While the name of the Riesentor only dates back to the mid-15th century, the structure itself is actually much older. In fact, this portal and the area surrounding it are the oldest visible portions of the church, dating to the mid-12th century. Construction on the Giant's Gate began in 1147, during the Romanesque period, which was characterized by a heavy, blocky style. As you can see, during that time the walls were thick, towers were short, and windows were narrow often no wider than the span of a brick, since making them any larger risked compromising the structural integrity of the wall. Statuary also presented a problem. As you can see by the gargoyles and demons decorating the facade around the giant's gate, those that protrude are quite small. The larger sculptures are actually carved into the wall. These grotesques are meant to depict both the earthly and supernatural evils that threaten Catholic believers. And actually, there's one human face among them. If you're standing before the recessed entryway, just look to the lower left of the tympanum. That's the semicircular panel above the door with Christ flanked by two angels. In a little row of beasts and monsters that runs even with the top of the doorway, you'll see a little human face wearing a pointed conical hat. He's sandwiched right between a lion and a double-bodied griffin-like creature, just above the fourth column away from the doorframe. And believe it or not, a viewer in the medieval period would know exactly who this was from his hat. Called a Pileus Cornutus, or Judenhut, this pointed hat was an article of clothing that visually distinguished male members of the Jewish community. Much of Europe made distinguishing attire mandatory for its Jewish populations starting in the early 13th century. The Vienna City Council officially required this conical hat starting in 1267. The later successor to this headwear was a roughly finger-thick yellow felt ring, worn affixed to the chest. In many German principalities, it was a yellow felt badge in the shape of the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. In England, a hand-sized piece of yellow taffeta to be pinned to the chest of all Jewish boys and men above the age of seven. In some areas of France, anyone who did not wear both a yellow circular badge on their chest and a similar sign on their back was subject to the legal punishment of having to publicly forfeit their clothing to the person who denounced them. So, why the color yellow? Due to its association with gold and money. Since the early medieval period, it was Europe's Jewish communities that provided vital banking services to Catholic governments and individuals. Contemporaneous interpretations of the Bible, especially the New Testament, in which Christ derives the money changers from the temple, forbade Christians from lending for profit. While the Torah criticizes interest taking and urges the avoidance of debt, it was generally agreed that interest could be charged to non Jewish loan seekers. As Jewish individuals were also forbidden in many areas of Europe from owning land, becoming a merchant banker was a way of both securing a living and providing a crucial service to the community in the form of issuing credits and insurances, which are functions necessary for the maintenance, defense, and growth of a modern state. In fact, this was such an important role that the employment of a so called court Jew, in many ways the predecessor to a modern secretary of the treasury, became a key administrative officer in most of Europe's royal and noble courts throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. This figure was responsible for managing finances, supplying the military, exchanging currency, and raising revenue through taxes. Of course, though these are necessary duties, they're not very popular, especially the levying of taxes, and people performing these duties became the targets of stigma and prejudice especially since those engaged in financial services were generally better able to weather the economic shocks of famine, plague, war, or political unrest, a fact that frequently drew speculation that the Jewish community had somehow played a role in such events. While the wearing of the Judenhut declined after the 16th century, the mandate of wearing such yellow badges persisted in some areas of Europe into the 18th century and, of course, provided a historical foundation for the mid-20th century mandate that Jewish individuals wear a yellow Star of David affixed to their clothing during the Nazi occupation. Stepping back again from the main portal, let your eye wander upward and outward from the semicircular tympanum above the door to the facade surrounding the Giant's Gate, and you will notice two small circular rose windows. While these were originally early Gothic stained glass, Both were replaced with mechanisms in 1700 that left one as a clock, on the left, and one as a calendar, on the right. But terminating just below these windows, you'll see two decorative engaged columns. They don't serve any structural purpose, and they're almost identical except for the designs at the top, which, if you use your imagination a bit, you might be able to recognize as stylized representations of human genitalia. A penis on the left, and a vulva on the right. Their significance eludes historians to this day, but a couple of leading theories suggest that these symbols of human sexuality may reference the pagan beliefs of the Romans, possibly even a pagan worship site that stood here before the construction of the cathedral, or from which its building materials were taken. Another theory suggests that these symbols may have been included by the church's masons as references to their fraternal order. The two-pillared shape of the columns is strongly reminiscent of the two pillars of Boaz and Yachin, which stood on the porch of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and appear frequently in the symbology of Freemasonry. Or they may be the product of a medieval superstition. Since demons and evil spirits were believed to be sexless, pictorial references to sex and sex organs were thought to deter them in which case placing these near the entrance to a church would be considered a way of protecting a sacred space. Continuing upward, above the curious genitalia columns, the attached octagonal towers that form the upper corners of the cathedral's west facade are known as the heidenturme, or heathen's towers. Again, probably referencing a Roman worship site on this location dating to around the 1st through 4th century AD. These two towers long housed a total of 21 bells, which were used as a form of auditory timekeeping for the local population in the era before personal timepieces, everything from the time to wake up, to the call to mass or prayers, to the Fressglocke that signaled lunchtime, to the Bieringerin, a bell that rang out at 9.55pm as a last call for local taverns, thankfully no longer in service. The church was the absolute center of medieval and gothic existence, both religious and secular. Even today, the church is the geographic center of the first district. In fact, if you ever get lost in Vienna, look at the individual house numbers and head in the direction in which they decrease. Eventually, that'll lead you back to St. Stephen's Cathedral. The church was where life began and ended, from baptism to burial, and it provided structure and standards for everything in between. In fact, off to the left of the main portal, mounted horizontally onto the oldest portion of the facade, about a meter off the ground, you'll see two metal bars of different lengths. These are the standard measurements of a Viennese drapery L on top and a linen L below it, roughly the length of your forearms from elbow to elbow when you clasp your hands together. Many cities had their own official standards of L mounted in a public place to ensure fair trading amongst merchants. Just above and to the left of these bars is a faint circular indentation in the wall. A popular myth is that this set the standard size of flatbread, and while you can still find loaves of this size in the city's open-air markets today, the indent here was actually caused by the swinging of a mounted hook that served to prop open a gate that once hung before the main portal. Heading over to the other side of the entryway, Look for a thick pane of glass mounted several meters to the right of the main door, and you'll find a remnant of the period of Nazi occupation. Originally in white paint, it's now a more permanent inscription chiseled into the stone facade, reading simply O5. This is the mark of the Austrian resistance movement, a group that acted against the Nazis during the Second World War. So why the insignia O5? The most popular explanation is that it secretly references the German name of Austria, Österreich. After the German annexation of Austria in 1938, Hitler rechristened Austria the Ostmark, the Eastern Territory of the Third Reich. But those in support of Austrian independence from Hitler's Germany refused to refer to their country as the Eastern Territory, insisting instead on using the country's previous name. If you take O and add the fifth letter of the alphabet, E, you get the German letter Ö, an O with an umlaut, which is the first letter of Österreich, the name for Austria in German. Beginning in late 1943, O5 could be found scrawled in public spaces across the country, signaling the underground survival of the group and local support for its resistance efforts. But recent research has revealed that the insignia held another, perhaps more telling, significance. Specifically, the number five was a chosen reference to the resistance factions of all of the five major Austrian political leanings— monarchists, Catholics, liberals, socialists, and communists. The resistance movement itself reflected this political diversity and acknowledging this in the moniker O5 sent the message that resistance to the Nazi agenda was the responsibility that united all five of these political factions in a common cause. The O5 inscription isn't the cathedral's only scar from that dark time in Austria's history. If you start to make your way along the cathedral's south side, your right side if you're facing the entrance, you'll be able to appreciate the scale of what happened in the final weeks of the Second World War. On April 10, 1945, Russian troops had been pressing into the city for days, forcing the remaining Nazi Wehrmacht into a slow retreat across the Danube in the Battle of Vienna. During the chaos of the Russian approach, someone, possibly members of the Austrian resistance movement, had gained access to the cathedral's taller south tower. And hung a white sheet as a message to the Allied forces that the Viennese wished to surrender. The fighting had left much of the inner district in smoldering ruins, the retreating Germans launching shells back into the center in their wake. Local residents had been fighting fires for days, forming exhausted bucket brigades even as the bombs continued to fall, and racing up the 68-meter-tall South Tower with water to quench hot spots desperately trying to save the cathedral's nearly 600-year-old wooden roof understructure from catching fire. In the course of retreating from the city, SS-Obergruppenführer and city commander Josef Dietrich saw the defiant white flag and ordered his artillery to target the tower in a final insult to the Viennese. The Wehrmacht captain who received the order, Gerhard Klinkicht, later attested that Dietrich's order read as follows, quote, In retaliation for the raising of the white flag, the cathedral should be bombarded with 100 shells, reducing it to ash and rubble. And if that doesn't suffice for its destruction, continue shooting. But Klinkicht decided to disregard the order, sparing the cathedral from deliberate destruction by the Wehrmacht. A plaque dedicated to him at the South Tower's base commemorates this refusal, but it wasn't enough to save the cathedral's roof. Sparks from the fires that ravaged the buildings on the west side of the square were picked up by the wind and caught on the dry wood scaffolding that had been erected around the North Tower's cupola. Despite the efforts of the civilian bucket brigades, the fire smoldered and spread to the vulnerable wooden Gothic roof structure beneath its ornate glazed tiles, finally causing it to fully collapse in the late morning of April 12th. By noon of that same day, the blaze had spread up the beloved South Tower. Along the city's proudest landmark and highest downtown structure, the tower carries the nickname Steffel, kind of the Austrian equivalent of Little Stevie or Stevo. It stands more than 136 meters or 445 feet above street level and for centuries served as a lookout for the military and fire department to survey and ensure the safety of the city. It also housed the giant Pummerin bell, the so-called Voice of Austria, which was rung to warn of fire or attack, announce royal weddings, births, and deaths, and mark important religious occasions. This bell, with a diameter of more than three meters, that's roughly nine and a half feet, and a weight of more than 20,000 kilos, nearly 50,000 pounds, was originally cast from 280 melted-down cannons that were left behind by the retreating Turkish armies at the end of the 17th century. The second largest swinging bell in Europe, the Pumergen, was so massive that it took 16 men pulling on the bell rope for a quarter of an hour to build up enough momentum for its clapper to strike. In the 19th century, architects noticed that the forces of this mighty bell swinging back and forth were endangering the tower. And they resolved to ring it by only moving the clapper, which still required the efforts of eight men. When the fire spread to the bell's wooden moorings, the pumergen came crashing down to the cathedral floor, shattering into pieces. Today, if you're intrepid enough to climb the 343 steps to the top of the south tower, you'll find an empty bell cage. But the story of the bell didn't end in the final months of World War II. During the restoration of the church, the shattered pieces of the Pumergen were assembled by the neighboring province of Lower Austria, and together with several more original 17th-century canon taken from the Military History Museum, were recast. The new Pummergen hangs today in the cathedral's shorter north tower on the opposite side of the church, and is rung by a computer system on Catholic Holy Days, Austria's National Day October 26th, to mark state funerals, and to ring in the new year. The roof, of course, was also reconstructed. Rather than rebuilding the ornate Gothic larchwood truss, the post-war restoration opted for 600 metric tons of steel bracing. This inner structure was then retiled with 230,000 painted Czech tiles, largely true to the pattern that had adorned the roof since its last retiling in 1831 though this time with the year 1950 included under the crests of the city and republic on its north face to commemorate the completion of the cathedral's post-war restoration. Owing to the extreme pitch of the roof, an 80-degree angle at its steepest points nearly perpendicular to street level, this design can be seen from the square, relatively close to the church. This also means that it's self-cleaning, which has both an aesthetic and a practical purpose— Since snow can't collect on the roof, its structure didn't have to be built to accommodate its potential additional weight. Continuing counterclockwise around the rear of the church brings you past the former shrine sanctuary, in which the valuable reliquaries, monstrances, and other diocesan treasures were once held. Its exterior features two representations of the Passion of Christ— One, a relief from the early 15th century, and the other, a series of six frescoes from around 1500. Actually, for centuries, these frescoes were covered up and forgotten. It was only in 1942, in the process of taking down another Passion of Christ relief, now hanging inside the church, just under the organ, that workers discovered what was hidden beneath it. Further along the wall, you'll see a 19th century copy of a Christ figure depicted from the hips up. Since the original is inside the church, I discuss it in the episode dedicated to Stefan's Dome's interior. Keep following the curve of this Albertine choir, added in the early 1300s by Duke Albert I and his son Albert II, and past the squat little sacristy adjoining it, added in the late 17th century to accommodate the cathedral's vestments, sacraments, and their vessels, altar linens, and processional implements. And keeping the cathedral on your left, before you get to the cathedral's north tower, you'll notice an ornate gold sunburst mounted above a Baroque sculpture depicting Saint John of Capistrano rather obliviously standing on a figure meant to represent a Turkish soldier. Beneath this group, you'll see a comparatively plain octagonal structure. This is the cathedral's original late Gothic cemetery pulpit. From which the then 68 year old Saint John of Capistrano purportedly delivered a series of 32 sermons in June of 1451. While he was also an avid inquisitor and had initiated various pogroms against Europe's Jewish communities, this time the so called soldier saint was calling for the Catholic faithful to rise up against the Ottomans before they could take Constantinople. The effort was unsuccessful, Constantinople fell in 1453 at which point John of Capistrano returned to Vienna to gin up support for a crusade. He and his troops did successfully repel the Turkish forces from the city of Belgrade, ultimately slowing the Ottoman advance, but St. John died later that year, at age 70, of the Bubonic Plague. Just past this pulpit, you'll see the gated entrance to the Totenkapelle, the little chapel where last rites were spoken over the mortal remains of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart on December 6, 1791. If you're interested in learning more about this enigmatic composer and his life in Vienna, check out my tour dedicated to Vienna's musical history. Continuing along the outside of the cathedral, you'll come next to the base of the modest north tower. As you can see, construction stopped abruptly at about 60 meters up, where the structure ends with a rather incongruous Renaissance-style copper dome. Also called the Adler-Turm, or Eagle's Tower, this was originally intended to be a twin of the 136-meter-tall South Tower, but was left unfinished. Of course, there's a local legend to explain why. A young man named Hans Puxbaum was working as a mason and architect under the cathedral's master builder, a hard-bargaining man named Prachatitz. Hans was in the unfortunate position of being in love with Prachatitz's beautiful daughter, Maria. Prachatitz refused to allow Hans and Maria to marry, except on one condition. If Hans could finish the newly begun North Tower, before Prachatitz finished the South Tower. Hans knew this was impossible, since the South Tower was already almost completed at the time, and he fell into despair. The next day, however, a curious man in gray approached Hans right here at the base of the North Tower's construction site and asked him why he seemed so sad. Hans told his story, and the little man responded mysteriously that he would enable Hans to finish the tower in time, as long as Hans promised never to mention the name of God or any of the saints during the tower's construction. Hans gladly agreed and work sped ahead. One day, elated at the tower's progress and enjoying the view from the top of the tower's scaffolding, Hans saw Maria down below and immediately called out to her. But Maria is the name of the Mother of Christ, and as soon as the name came out of Hans's mouth, the little man in gray reappeared, this time as the devil in his true form, and pushed poor Hans from the top of the tower. Hans's body was never found, and there has been a curse on the tower ever since. While this is the most popular account, it's more likely that it was the logistical and financial challenges of making this church into a bishopric that forced the project to be put on hold. Emperor Friedrich III, who you can meet inside the church, succeeded in bringing a bishop to Vienna in 1480. The papal bull announcing it was nailed to the door before you. Between updating the then nearly 150-year-old Albertine choir, combating the early phases of what would become the Protestant Reformation, and slowing the Turkish advance in the East, finishing the tower was not a priority. By the time they got back around to the project 80 years or so later, they decided that the Gothic style was passé, slapped a Renaissance cupola on top so it wouldn't look so stumpy, and it's been that way ever since. In 1951, this cupola became the new home of the recast Pomergan Bell. You can visit it yourself for a couple of euros. Unlike the taller south tower, there's even an elevator that can take you to the top, accessible from inside the cathedral. Before continuing along the square, stand for a moment facing the three pointed arch portals of the Adlatour, the gated entrance to the church at the base of the tower. These arches are separated by two square columns. Look at the one on your left, the one between the left and center arches. Near the base, where the column meets its sandstone fundament, you should see a free-spinning metal handle affixed to the column just a few feet above street level. This is called the Azul Ring, the Asylum Ring, and dates back to Babenberger Duke Leopold VI, nicknamed the Glorious. In addition to participating in the Spanish Reconquista, founding a number of monasteries, and bringing the Gothic architectural style back with him to Austria in the early 13th century, Leopold introduced the policy of sanctuary. Anyone accused of a crime and pursued by the local authorities who could make it to this spot and touch this handle would then fall under the authority of the church rather than the local magistrate. If you've read or seen Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame, you may remember that Quasimodo brings Esmeralda into the church to save her from being hanged for murder, invoking this same Catholic rite of sanctuary. This handle, nicknamed the Leo Ring locally after Leopold VI, who introduced it, is the reason why, in Austria, kids playing tag use the term Leo rather than safe to designate an object that, when touched, grants the player safety. As you now make your way back toward the cathedral's main entrance, completing your lap around its exterior, it's worth mentioning that most of the area surrounding St. Stephen's that's now a public square was once a large cemetery. It was absolutely imperative for the Catholic faithful to be buried on hallowed ground if they wanted to get into heaven, so this was valuable and limited real estate. Of course, the most desirable plots were directly under the altar a location still reserved for Habsburg royalty, bishops, and members of the clergy. But at two times in the city's history, the church was forced to rethink its burial practices during Vienna's two largest outbreaks of the bubonic plague, which tore through the populace in the 14th century and the late 17th century. From today's perspective, it's no wonder that the fatality rate of this disease hovered right around 70%. Prescriptions from leading medical professionals of the day involved the wearing of amulets made from a mixture of desiccated and pulverized toads, the menstrual blood of young maidens, white arsenic and arsenic sulfide, pearls, corals, oriental emeralds, and a number of roots and herbs, prepared during the proper lunar phase to allow optimal alignment of the planets, and hung by a silk ribbon above the heart. Of course, urban centers like Vienna suffered the worst of it and had the least space in which to inter their mounting dead. In the outbreak of the late 1340s, records indicate that St. Stephen's Cemetery, with an area of just over 10,000 square meters, received around 15,000 bodies of plague victims. In the 1680s, it shared the load of 76,000 Viennese dead with only a handful of other cemeteries within what is now the first district. To accommodate the huge influx of bodies, a series of catacombs and subterranean chambers had to be excavated below the cathedral. These rooms filled up quickly, so a chasm was opened at street level near the northeast corner of the church, into which people would deposit the bodies of their deceased family members. But again, space ran out, and prisoners were forced to work down in the catacombs, pulling the bones from the other decomposing remains and stacking them in rooms like firewood. Eventually, the decision was made to prohibit the interment of bodies in graveyards inside the city limits. St. Stephen's Churchyard was decommissioned in 1732 and made into a public square, and some of the more ornate headstones were mounted on the outer and inner walls of the church. The next 50 years or so saw the substantial expansion of St. Stephen's catacombs, which did not fall under the same restrictions and received another 11,000 bodies until 1783, when Emperor Joseph II ordered that this practice be discontinued and mandated the use of communal cemeteries outside of the city's walls. You can still visit the Stephansdom catacombs, however. Many rooms in this extensive subterranean network are still maintained, and short tours in English leave from inside the church several times a day. Speaking of which, let's complete our lap around the cathedral. If you're interested in seeing Stefan's Dome from the inside, check out my episode dedicated to the cathedral's interior. As long as there's not a mass or concert going on, it's free to enter the north aisle, the one on the left, as you go in. Tickets can be purchased for the rest of the nave, the gallery, the catacombs, and both towers, individually or as a reduced combination ticket. But much of what I discuss in my episode on the inside of the cathedral is visible from the areas that are free to access, so don't feel that you need to purchase admission. Once you're done exploring St. Stephen's, head south. That's your left if you're exiting the church through its main door. And you'll notice a large multi story curved glass building opposite the cathedral. It's called the House, and you'll want to follow its facade as it curves around to the right. It will direct you into the broad pedestrian street called the Graben, the next episode of this tour. If you're not sure you're in the right pedestrian street, since the Kärtnerstrasse also terminates at St. Stephen's Square, look on your left for a monumental yellow building with black wrought iron railings, black decorative urns, and a curved corner entrance. A dark blue sign just above and to the right of the corner entrance should read 1. Graben, indicating the district you're in and the street you're currently on. Now hit play on the next episode and continue down this street.